0: All right. What's this? Oh, that's right. Vacation. Yes. Hi there, friends. I'm I'm going on vacation this week. Uh, something that we started last year at this time. Uh, it went so well. My wife and kids uh, informed me uh, that uh, we're going to do it again this year. So uh, not to leave you stranded, however, we're going to give you a, a great uh, interview that uh, we were uh, happy and ecstatic and uh, just enjoyed tremendously to do uh, a couple of weeks back with our pal Aaron Harris, uh, he, the uh, chief uh, instigator of a great podcast called The Football Odyssey, part of the Sports History Network collection of podcasts. And uh, we had a wonderful time. Uh, I don't know if Aaron did, but I certainly did. Uh, regaling uh, some of the uh, memories around uh, football teams of the past and leagues uh, of your, uh, and not just in football, but also sort of more broadly as well. And frankly, if you're new to these proceedings and uh, have not heard uh, an episode of this show are relatively uh, new to this feed. Uh, hopefully a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, I guess, as to why the hell I do what I do uh, and what sort of makes me tick when it comes to uh, putting this show together and why and how it all came about and that kind of stuff. Lots of fun. Thank you, Aaron, for having us. Uh, and uh, we uh, hope you enjoy uh, this little uh, uh, palate cleanser, shall we say, uh, during uh, my little vacation time. Thank you for indulging me on that. Thank you to Aaron for having us, and um, we'll see you next week with a fun-filled episode. Until then, please sit back. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say, and enjoy.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris. On today's show, I'm pleased to welcome Tim Hanlon. Tim is the host and producer of Good Seeds Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to the exploration of what used to be in professional sports. In this episode, Tim and I discuss his roots as a podcaster and take a trip down memory lane for a fun and nostalgic conversation surrounding defunct football teams, rival football leagues, and much more. I think you all will enjoy hearing what Tim has to say being on the other end of an interview, and I highly recommend his show to anyone who hasn't listened to it, but appreciates obscure and vintage sports stories. So with that being said, thank you everyone for tuning in, and enjoy the show. All right, Tim Halen, the host of Good Seats Still Available. How are you, sir?
0: Oh, I'm doing great. I appreciate your uh, your uh, calling me and asking me to, to do this. I'm honored.
1: Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure. You're uh, 40 years into the show now? <laughs> Jeez.
0: Yeah, I, I, sometimes it seems like it just started yesterday, and on, on uh, usually when a deadline is bearing down on me, it seems like it's been forever. So it's somewhere in between, but yes, according to the calendar, it's been four years.
1: The show as it currently is, do you think that it's consistent with the vision you had going into the show, or do you think in some respects it's kind of taken on a life of its own?
0: Wow, good question. I... Um... So you know look the, the whole premise is is uh, a a a somewhat odd and borderline uh, perverse fascination uh, interest in uh teams and leagues uh no longer with us right that could be defunct that could be previously domiciled uh it's even frankly gotten a little bit into uh things outside of team centric leagues uh and sports right so events like we uh, the tour de trump for example um you know or or uh, you know other you know I think the superstars is gonna be something in our in our future I mean there there's these you can bend and squint really hard right and uh, sort of remember and see sort of professional events uh, leagues and leagues and teams and all that kind of stuff um, I, it really just started frankly as a diversion right just a just a um, an artistic if you will um, diversion from uh, just you know, the day job I work in in the realm of media uh, uh, consulting uh, for the media industry, advertising and technology and stuff. Uh, and the family, I got two you know teenage girls. That's all you need to know. Uh, <laughs> that my wife and I have to, you know, uh, you you can you can't control them, but you can you can only hope to contain them, right? Um, but this this is something for me, and and one of these weird things in you know as I, I've sort of supposedly grown up uh, has been this very. uh, uh, just sort of, um, persistent interest in, uh, these teams and leagues that, that, that don't longer, no longer exist. And, um, I've always tried to figure out an outlet for, uh, and, you know, I I always thought it was going to be maybe an encyclopedic kind of book. Um, I thought perhaps that would be, you know, the blog thing. Um, but I, you know, the podcast sort of phenomenon really kind of, uh, captured my attention about six or seven years ago from the day job side of things. Uh, and then I just literally forced myself to go to um, a conference in Chicago a couple of years ago, about five years ago, called Podcast Movement, it's still around. Um, and it's really sort of a DIY kind of thing. It's like, hey, interested in podcasting? Well, here is two and a half days of people telling you how they did it, how they do it, what to watch out for, how to monetize, all that kind of stuff. So I just, you know, I was like a sponge, and I said, screw it, I could do this. Um, and, and having been a um, college broadcaster. In the past i've worked uh, as a journalist in the past right so uh it, it just all sort of sort of came together and you know learn the podcast uh pieces to it um so when i started out to your question um i really kind of just wanted to just literally just pick a team and every week try to have a conversation around it preferably with somebody who was either part of it or there at the time um but as we sort of moved along i recognized that you know the <laughs> As the decades roll on, you know, people die, you know, and and the stories get, uh, um, you know, forgotten. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there and you can go into Wikipedia and all that. But I I really like to talk to people who are, if not at the source, uh, have spent time digging into the source of these stories. Uh, And frankly, largely because nobody else was doing it. Um, It felt untapped to me. I always... You know, when I was growing up, I always remember going to like the bookstore in the sports section and wondering, you know, I was just waiting for that defunct book to be there on the shelf and go, ah, you know, I should have done this. And it never came. <laughs> so I figured, you know, podcasting is probably the quickest way And conversations. I, I And I'm just amazed uh, at just how many doors it's opened and further puzzles and enigmas it's uh, uh, laid out for us because – As we've talked about on the show, and we'll talk about in a few minutes with football in particular, um, defunct, forgotten, relocated, and all those things, um, in the realm of pro sports, it is the gift that keeps on giving. And it's as relevant today as it was from when the first ever pro baseball franchise came and went back in the 1800s.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And like when I first found your show, it was about a year and a half ago. It was kind of a godsend because I love obscure sports stories and particularly football, but you know, you've you've developed this whole community around you that loves these underserved stories that you're not going to get from a lot of the mainstream media outlets. And that's kind of the beauty of podcasting where anybody can kind of create their own multimedia story around whatever they want. Um, so I, I think it's good that you chose podcasting in particular because it's different whenever you make a YouTube video or when you have a blog where I think you're the one who's coming off as, um, the authority on a subject, whereas with a podcast, you can have people who are either there or who are people who have given in-depth research to the topic and they can kind of tell you what they learned.
0: Yeah. Look and I, I never, you know, I am by no means an expert on anything. I mean, I may, I may be an occasional expert on certain teams or leagues that that i'm I'm personally interested in, but I will tell you the vast majority of, of topics that we've gotten into I'm either ignorant of un- was unaware of or frankly wasn't necessarily interested in, but it fits this sort of odd genre that I created for myself four years ago unwittingly so but it's it's curious right that we say it's a curious little podcast it's not so little anymore, thank goodness. Right. I guess. But the curious part is absolutely there because I, I just I try to approach it with as I, I there's a whole there's a whole ton of stuff I don't know about some of these stories and frankly even the ones I'm most passionate about right so as longtime listeners will know you know this this started out as more I think we've discovered is sort of a a personal um, I guess abandonment uh, in my teenage years from the team that I latched onto back then which was the New York Cosmos of the North American Soccer League right. And what I have found thematically is, uh, yes, a lot of this, although not exclusively, but it does tend to sort of skew male and and a little older. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we try to address that uh, on a lot of that. There's a lot of women's sports stuff that we're we've gotten into and more to come. And and so we we need to you know we're trying to be as uh, expansionary and, and accommodating as possible for, for a lot of different reasons. But the, the 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 challenge and the reality is that it seems to me that a lot of our most passionate listeners had similar situations, right, in their, let's call it impressionable uh, youth um, where sports fans, either participant or spe- uh, spectator or combinations of the two, have some very memorable experience of that first baseball game, that first football game, that whatever. And if it happened to be in a league that sort of came and went, um, it 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 just sort of is like a sort of like a double word score and I think people identify with that I think people identify with what they were doing at that time the things especially if they were interested in sports that they were most interested and passionate about and as life moves on as one gets older and you know school a career and, and life and all that other stuff um you know it, it's a bit of nostalgia I think for you know happier times perhaps when you're younger and a little bit more carefree and if you happen to have been a sports fan and you happen to have latched on to a a club or a circuit or something that that is isn't around anymore there's always that sort of curiosity and generally with kind of a sort of a you know nostalgic glint and of uh of uh, of happiness i guess and i will say this it, the the thing that i have learned about this is that everybody's got their own team and sport or whatever sort of vertical passion Um, very few. Although I'm shocked as the weeks go on, the months go on, um, that are just interested in defunctness generally, right? Because you know, every time I do you know a a third, uh, uh, you know, of the month soccer episode, it's like, oh, where's the football? Where's the hockey? Too much soccer. And then I'll do a whole bunch on hockey, and then. The football fans will be crying out, and so the the good news and the bad news is that's good because people are like, okay, I want, I, you know, they're saying what they want, um, but the 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 it, this is an equal opportunity storytelling vehicle, I think, and and there's so many great stories and around all this stuff, and you know, if there's a sport or a team or a league that we haven't gotten to yet, hang tight because we'll get there because there's just plenty of it still yet to be explored.
1: Yeah, well, and that kind of goes back to the point made earlier about telling stories that are out of the mainstream. I mean, you did an episode on, I think it was the National Bowling League. Like, where else are you going to hear a story about that aside from your show? I mean, I can't really think of who else would really do something like that.
0: Well, you could also argue, why would anybody want to do that? But um, yeah. I, I, it's fascinating to me. I mean, I, you know, I didn't know about it, right? And I, I some, I don't know how I discovered it. But to know that there was a team-based format in bowling and frankly what that to me did was okay well that sounds odd but you know let's let's scratch the surface of that a little bit yeah. um what it did was it opened up the door to this other sort of box about pro bowling and what it was going through and what it was like in the late 50s early 60s and, and frankly the origins of the pba the professional bowlers association which is sort of waxed and waned in popularity especially with television i mean we it was literally this national bowling league was in direct competition with this tour-based, individual-centric pro bowlers association. Ultimately, the PBA won out as mm-hmm. the a to go to market. In some senses, it's almost like tennis too. World Team Tennis in the '70s um, was one manner by which the pro game came into sort of um, its own in the '70s. But you know, people don't sort of remember that there was this thing called World championship tennis that was started by lamar hunter there was also the beginnings of what was a tour-based scenario too in the world tennis association and then the women's tennis association right so um it, it's interesting golf had the same thing we haven't gotten to it yet but you know golf's had a club a, a, a team-centric league approach as well right um so to me this is all fascinating stuff most people vast majority of people even sports fans don't even know that stuff and to me that's I don't know why, but it, to me, that's just fascinating. And I want to know more.
1: Yeah, but given that knowledge that you have, I mean, I know you say you don't think of yourself as an expert, um, even on topics that of teams that you follow, but would you at the very least at this point, consider yourself, um, a sports historian?
0: Oh, armchair, uh, is has gotta be the descriptor there. I, I, you know, amateur, uh, whatever other, you know, adjective you want to throw in there. Um, no, I, by no means. I mean, I, I studied a fair bit of history in college and liberal arts and stuff. I, I'm fascinated by history, generally nonfiction. Um, but, but I, look, I think, uh, sports, uh, it, you know, by definition, whether people recognize it or not is essentially, um, a history lesson. Now that sounds a little odd, right? When you're watching the the warriors and the, and the thunder go at it. Right. Um, I, I, but the reality is that the warriors had a story, right? They started in this, this little city called Philadelphia years and years ago. Right. There were people and and players and, and situations. And we've explored a bunch of them. Um, and the, the, the thunder, right. You talk to anybody in Seattle, that's still a very raw topic, even though they moved what 10 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I, I, these are living, breathing histories of sports, right? Um doesn't mean you have to be, you, know, you have to do the research and do the work and to enjoy it, no. But to me, it's like, okay, how did this get here? You know, how, how do these teams, is it, you don't just sort of wake up one day, oh, there's this National Basketball Association. Well, I, you know, there, there's a whole fitful story of how this NBA came into being. I mean, if you grew up like I did in the 70s, you know, I was on life support, but it certainly was nowhere near what it is today. I mean, I, I could tell you stories about, you know, going to New Jersey Nets games in the Rutgers Athletic Center while the Meadowlands Arena was being built in, and And that being, you know, supposedly going to be the savior of this of this franchise that, you know, the Nets played all over the place. They played in armories and in and, and the A.B. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. And to me, again, that's sort of fascinating. And you always wonder. And I guess the the fascination is like you know in the old days when you would sort of read the media guides or the, uh, the yearbooks and stuff you'd sort of see this history. It's like okay, little snapshots of sort of how this team kind of got there. Wh- Where the name come from? What why the logo is the way it is? Um, I don't know. To me, that's always been kind of the um, I don't know the, the door opener to you know going into the game and enjoying it. Right? To, it's part of the it's part of how to enjoy the game is to sort of understand like why this team exists and and why they look the way they do. And, and, um, I, you know, to me, that's just, that's a huge Pandora's box and we just, I love to go deep into it and the more
1: obscure stuff, the better. Yeah, I completely agree. Cause it, it seems to definitely like, you know, these kind of stories, you definitely need to have a sense of history more than, than just sports, but you can learn it through sports too. Um, and it's kind of like,
0: Aaron, it's also this too. I, and look now, now I'm going to start to be, you know, old man yelling at the clouds. Right. So I'm of a certain age, right. You know, my mid fifties. Right. So young enough yet old enough. Right. And, um, sometimes I wonder which, depending on the time of day you ask me. Um, but I I do think, um, that these kids today, right. Um, yeah, the the, the pro sports is professional with a capital P, Mm -hmm. um, which is fine, but it is, it is, um, it's gargantuan, right? It's big business. It's private equity. It's SPACs. It's, you know, not that money hasn't been part of the, the fabric of, of pro sports from the earliest days. It certainly has. Um, and some of the themes are universal. Big boys are their toys, uh, centrally owned versus franchised. Um, you know, uh, the just, uh, all kinds of sort of things that y- unions versus, uh, you know, the owners and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, the, the, the level at which this is now, and we've seen it with the Super League, right, in Europe, with the ill-fated Super League, we think ill-fated. Um, I don't know. I, I'm the biggest soccer fan you're going to find, especially of the U.S. variety, which is, you know, a fairly hearty bunch. Um, but, you know, we're, we're approaching – 30, 32 teams in MLS, you know, uh, do we need how many more? Be- is there another baseball franchise or two still to come? Uh, you know, uh, NHL's getting to 32 soon, uh, you know, with the Kraken coming in. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe there will be room for 30, 40, 50 teams. I don't know. I, it just, to, to me, you wonder just how far all of that goes. And, you know, if it takes an economic cycle or two to kind of shake things loose to the foundation a little bit more i i I just don't know if it's completely expansionary forever right and i I just you know to me that also gets away from a little bit of sort of the heart the soul the fun the joy the competition that kind of stuff and i think frankly like i said before everything old is new again all these things all these issues just keep coming around and over and over again this 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 thing going on in in Europe with this proposed super league is absolutely a great example of where and how and when does it go too far and you know i'm not saying that the super league idea is necessarily wrong i think it is largely i don't think it goes away i don't i don't think it's going to stop you know big uh check writing owners to you know uh to billionaire more um but i you know i also think it's also you know, good for the fans that they rebelled and and sort of fought back and said, "You know this may be a line not to cross, and th- that gives me hope that maybe the sort of the essence of sports um can actually sort of retain its soul and its joy and all that the origination of that stuff um before arguably it's too late,
1: yeah it definitely well yeah, it definitely does feel suffocating at times, you know, I'll read. Some old, I guess, like embedded journalist books about, you know, a reporter goes and travels with, you know, the Steelers, for example, in the 70s or. Um, like what Paul Zimmerman did with the Jets in the last season of WeView Bank. And, and you just kind of see the cultural difference between a pro athlete back in those days versus today, because, you know, back then, obviously you didn't have social media, you didn't have this constant television coverage around athletes. So they kind of felt like just one of the common people. You know, you would often, some people in Pittsburgh would see like Ernie Holmes or Terry Bradshaw out and have a, a beer with them, you know, whereas when the money really started coming in more and more there became everybody had their guard up it seemed and you just feel like there's maybe a little bit of a disconnect more than there's ever been between professional sports and the fan bases that they follow
0: yeah look and i think football is especially uh indicative of that right i mean um yeah. I, we look back on uh the experiments that were uh the second version of the XFL which might have actually have a third uh rev to it um, and certainly the uh, alliance of american football um, you know you, and every time you see a new league that sort of pops up uh, in football in particular you, you, uh, you almost to a person you hear these stories of it 's another shot to play you know it's if it's and if it 's not sort of a last chance at the pro thing right making a career and a living and you know proven proven my doubters wrong and and, and getting into the nFL and all that stuff um it, it, a lot more of it actually a whole lot more of it tends to be about hey this is an opportunity for me to continue to play because i love the game i love playing right i you know uh, sometimes people will say i'll pay them to play right um and you know so for whatever reasons uh, you know i and i just i hear that theme over and over again especially when there's a new league in a sport that's never sort of been successful on a pro level or there's yet another Iteration, I guess, of the something other than NFL variety of football, Uh, and I still think we'll see more. Um, There is just a a a large pool of players that just want to continue to play and have some decent skills. Um, And you know, I would argue that the the fans of the AAF team in San Antonio or the XFL team that was in St. Louis, right? These these those fan bases, as examples. Uh, you know, I think they were really very much into their teams and, uh, looked forward to being able to just, you know, you know, uh, they found them to be accessible. Right. And that's part of the, that's part of the mix is you want to sort of promote and, and mingle a bit. And they didn't have any errors because they're, you know, fledgling and, and struggling and there to play the game and they're overjoyed to do it. Um, and that's that to me, that's a little bit of this, of the spirit of, of sports that, you know, is largely missing when you get to the top tiers.
1: Yeah, I I like how you bring up how a lot of these leagues are in in some regards a shot of redemption for people who want to continue playing football. And I think most of them do it with the intent of trying to get back into the NFL because, you know, the money they're going to be making with a a league like the AAF is not going to be beneficial to them. Um, Yeah, I, I was actually I live in Atlanta and I actually went to an Atlanta Legends game and you can see that the fan base I think is there, you know, it's obviously not huge, but you know, you see people generally wanted to support them. Um, But in in the back of your mind, you just always kind of think, is this really going to last as long as, you know, the executives want, or even maybe some of the diehard fans want, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It it almost just seems like when it comes to a competitive football league or a rival football league, it's just doomed to fail.
0: Well, I think that's the way the NFL wants to hear you say that, right? Um, but I, you know, I look—we we've done a ton of episodes. Uh, one in particular with our pal Jeff Perlman when he came out with his USFL book a couple of years ago. Just um, a couple of years ago already. It's hard to believe. It seems like it was yesterday. But um, you know, I, I I believe that there is a there is a slot, there is a place on the calendar for spring football. I, I you know I. I know that the, the, the snobs will say, well, oh, developmental or springly or all this kind of stuff. I, I, I think there is, there's an absolute opportunity to play the game in some level of professionalism in the spring months, right? To satiate that um that football interest and to either develop or give additional opportunities to a Another layer of player that isn't necessarily at the top NFL level. And, you know, if it's somebody coming down from the big show or going up to the big show or just there for the joy of the game, you know, so what? There's a plenty of there's a a plethora of players uh, that would qualify to play in that kind of uh, kind of realm. I I think there's an appetite for it. There's certainly a market for it. I think that the, the demise of the AAF and the second XFL, there are different reasons for each of them. Um, but I don't think it's because there's not a market for football in the spring that's not just training games for colleges.
1: Yeah, I, I think there might be a market for it. But And this is something that you talked about with Scott Adamson when he was talking about uh, football in Birmingham. And he was talking about at the end of the conversation how whenever you know nowadays, if given the choice between watching like Major League Rugby and some off-brand football or what have you, he would rather watch Major League Rugby. And you know the young younger version of himself would, you know, laugh that off. But I, I do kind of wonder if like the overabundance of the NFL could sort of create this exhaustive effect for rival leagues um, in the spring, particularly because. For me personally, you know, I think I'm as big of a football fan as they come. But really by the time the Super Bowl is over, that's my chance to kind of de plug from what's going on in the NFL. You know, I, I have a very passive interest in the draft. I don't really follow free agency. And just as a history fan, that's a time for me to watch a lot of the older games that were well before my time. So I, I kind of wonder if the overexhaustion of having football four out of the seven days a week, plus college football, if you know you're a person that's in a market that has really successful teams in both college and NFL, are people just burned out by the time February comes about?
0: No, well, I think that's a fair point, and I think that's actually healthy, right? But, um, you know, uh, the NFL certainly likes to keep the season uh, going all year round, too, right? They do own a television network, right? they do pump up this draft as sort of a, a mega event on its own. Um, you know, there's, this all kinds of, uh, of things that they try to sort of throw out there as sort of, yeah, the European league uh, idea was certainly one of those things. I, no, I, I agree. I, as long as you don't sort of see it as a direct competitor or as a uh, even uh, skill wise or, or professionally, I just think that um, I, I, there is there is this sort of insatiable appetite for discretionary spending uh, of income, especially uh, when the pandemic sort of wanes, right, to, to um, go out and enjoy. I think, you know, uh, some some would argue the NFL experience is, you know, like a lot of pro sports, already out of reach for the average fan, right? So there's the adjunct to that market where you could actually see some level of the pro game. Um I, you know, at the end of the day, it's also content, right? There's how many dozens of channels out there and now streaming services and stuff. They're just eager to get stuff, uh, stuff out there. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, it just, I get the sense that, um, that there's not going to be any shortage of people, uh, trying to continue to sort of push the envelope on, on that kind of stuff. I, I just, again, I come back to it as, you know, this isn't necessarily competing with the NFL. It's, it's, I, I think it's a great opportunity for rule changes, right. And, and, and experimentation and stuff, right. I mean, uh, that's what the minors are kind of for in lots of other sports. So, you know, I, I for example, I'm fascinated when the CFL came into the, the United States for a couple of years in the nineties, right. You know, why not a wider field? Why not a longer end zone? Why not, you know, a uh, uh, backfield in motion and, and, uh I, sure i mean three downs why not i mean you know it, it, you could make the argument that the nfl could use a few adjustments itself right and let's lo- also look back, back too, right In history right without the afl you don't have the field goal uh posts at the back of the end zone you don't have um the w-
2: right
0: uh, yeah ex- all that kind of stuff wfl too frankly for that matter um so it's it and that's by the way that is absolutely part of the history of all kinds of pro sports nba basketball uh, the nhl and hockey uh, the nasl with soccer you know with, with the, all innovations that those are the things and and uh, look we're still tinkering with the with the top tier pro leagues all the time right there are new rule changes this year for the nfl uh, baseball's got the you know the the extra inning thing now with the guy on second i mean you know the without the challenger leagues right this stuff
1: doesn't happen faster I'm glad you brought up the rule change because I think one of the things that actually holds back rival leagues, and this is actually something that would get me to watch, is the fact that they try just to replicate the same style of football that the NFL has. You know, I think a lot of people look at what had happened in 2001 with the XFL and think, "Oh, that was just a gimmick. No one's ever going to fully buy into it." Um, I know you. I what was his name? Michael McHugh, who was the commissioner for the United Football League. I think in your your episode with him, he had mentioned how he wanted it to be real football. Well, in my opinion, to keep something foot or to keep a game football, you know, to me, you need to have a line of scrimmage and the ball can't move past the line of scrimmage. More than once, you know, whether you're throwing or kicking. Once it's passed, you it can't go forward anymore. Like I would personally welcome a league that say, okay, we're gonna play football like it's 1914 or whatever. You know, we're we're not gonna have, require you to, you know, sh- be in place for one second after you shift. You could have multiple men in motion, only five or six men in the line of scrimmage. Like I would actually watch that. That's what I want to see. I mean, even the second iteration of the uh, XFL, I watched because they had a double forward pass. You know, no one was building an, an entire offense around that, but I still just wanted to see because I'm not seeing it in the NFL. So I think a lot of leagues just completely brush off any rule changes as gimmicks when I think it could benefit them tremendously.
0: Well, I look I think there's actually something you do that's more basic uh for football and that's make players two way, you know, mm. bring the rosters down. Um maybe limit the rules a little bit, right, to you know, so they don't sort of pass out. Right. From exhaustion, right? But yeah. um I mean th- that feels more pure uh, and maybe more uh, athletic and more uh, intriguing, right? Because um, you know it becomes a little bit more endurance becomes a bit more of the uh, a factor, right? Like in soccer, where you only have a handful of substitutes for the you know entire game, and and sometimes you miscalculate or player gets thrown out and stuff, and you have to scramble and and you know and the rest of the players have to kind of I don't know a two way kind of thing maybe with one or two specialists like a like a kicker and maybe a quarterback right uh i, I don't know that fe- it, I, from a an economic roster perspective that would certainly be attractive yeah, uh, definitely. i think you could sell it as a purer version of the game and i think it could be a nice little extra twist to or a differentiator from the quote-unquote classic NFL, and maybe, by the way, at the same time, identify some some new players and some new ideas and concepts as to, how to, you know, improve the big show. I don't know.
1: Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, and that was something that, uh, in your episode that you did with Jim Foster of the Arena Football League, you know, that that's one of the things he looked at when he was working for the NFL and then went to the... Uh, what was it, the Hall of Fame game? And he got to talk to like Nitra Lane and kind of talk about the two way players. And everybody agreed, you know, that's how it should be. I mean, my favorite part about football is all the different formations. Well, you know, you can have as many different formations as you want. You're still only allowed 11 people. So you can still replicate what you're doing if it fits the scheme. Um, but yeah, I, I would certainly be willing to see something like that, like a two way, you know, football league or. Um, something to that effect, I think, could really prove beneficial. And I think a lot of it would appeal to even a lot of fan bases that are football fans, but not necessarily NFL fans. You know, I, there's a few different coaching podcasts I listen to, and a lot of them come from high school. And a lot of them just like the way the high school game and the college football game is played. You know, it might seem like a minimal difference, but, you know, with the hash marks, being as far apart as they are in college and high school, as opposed to NFL, you know, it does make a lot of difference. And you see like a lot of ingenuity at that level that I think you can really catch on with a league like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, we also have to recognize too, that the NFL is the NFL, right. And the NFL is going to do what the NFL wants to do. And they are unique amongst all of the professional sports leagues, certainly in the United States, arguably on the world stage as well. Mm -hmm. Um, they're, you know, a really well oiled machine and uh, in many respects, propping up the television industry at the same time. Um, so, you know, until there's a, something more seismic or more, um, I don't know, existential in terms of a threat, I, I don't know how much changes at that top yeah. level, um, right. you know, rules changes or whatever. I, I, it's gotta be probably some uh, force from the outside that, that, that changes stuff. Maybe that's an economic downturn or, or I, I, maybe the pandemic, you know, sways a certain amount of people from not going to 70,000 seat, you know, palaces like the new SoFi stadium and, and Allegiant state. I don't know. I, it, it's something, but uh, maybe it's CTE, right? Maybe it's, uh, it's the player pensions thing. Maybe it's, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, it's, I, I just, to me, it, it is, um, it's peak. And don't get me wrong. I, I, I grew up as a big football fan, right? Big, big New York Giants fan. It was sort of almost sort of willed to me in my, uh, my bloodlines, right? Between Yankees in the baseball world and, and the football Giants and the, you know, growing up in Northern New Jersey, uh, that's, you know, that was just part of the deal. Um, but I, it's hard, it's harder to relate now. I don't know. for Maybe it's, maybe it's old age and just, you know, uh, uh, curmudgeon, uh, creeping in, but it also feels a little, you know, I, I'm not a gamer. Okay. I, I'm not a better. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't, to your point, I don't follow the draft, uh, super religiously. I don't do fantasies. So maybe that's the adjunct that, you know, if I was doing any of those things that would probably get me more connected to the NFL, but I, you know, uh, to me, I, I'm not, it, 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 it's harder to, it doesn't resonate with me as much as it used to for whatever reasons.
1: Now, as like an older fan, do you miss back when football was played in, uh, on a base in baseball stadiums?
0: Well, I, that's funny. Now, I, um, I, you know, I, 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 let's be honest, right? I, I don't think that was optimal for anybody. It was, it was an op- I mean, yeah. uh, understanding the stadium issues at the time and and how cost efficient that was and how to satiate two major sports, and I, I see why they were, but I, I can't imagine as a player that was approaching anything but fun I, I i don't know if anybody has any s- nostalgia for that I, I mean it's intriguing to me because i remember it. right i remember you know the yeah. the, the 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 oakland raider games in particular right? it's probably the probably the right. largest infield i mean the first football game I ever went to was a jet game at shea stadium um and you know it was more clouds of dust than there was you know uh turf coming up from from people's uh, uh shoes so i um i don't know if i i and I don't know how much romance there was to it. I think it's just, that just was, I'm certain that most of the players could not stand it. I know soccer players couldn't stand it for sure, but football, I'm sure couldn't stand it either. And, I, and I'm sure the baseball and, and the other uses for the stadium didn't like it either because that gridiron, that's, you know, that grid irons forever. If you will, uh, it doesn't, doesn't neatly go away. It's gotten better these days with artificial turf, but um,
1: yeah, I, 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 I think for me, I just like I, I see like that aesthetic in my head of just players in the 60s and 70s getting up with like dirt all over them, you know, especially if it's raining, then it just gets really muddy. And to me, it just feels like such a, a gridiron game, you know, even though it's played on a baseball field, I think it just complements the sports image very well.
0: Well, it's certainly more rough and tumble back then. I think it was certainly more. um I think those players are. um uh, And by the way, this is this applies to just about every pro sport. Um you know, are not only undervalued and under remembered and, and, but, but they need to be financially supported. And there's this, there's, mm-hmm. there's absolutely right. stories about, you know, the pensions and, and the uh, the concussion stuff and, and the, the health issues and all that stuff. I, I honestly believe we have yet to really fully see the ramifications of all of that stuff. Right. So I think we have to temper our, um, our fond memories of growing up watching the game that, you know, the games that we love, And remember too, that, you know, a lot of the safety uh, uh, initiatives that have come since um, and, and frankly the, 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 the gigantic sums of money, right. Those two things were not part of the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, even the eighties for a lot of these players and, and, uh, and participants. And um, you know, they're the ones who's, Interestingly, whose legacies and and stories that we're fascinated by, yet they're also probably the ones that um, may be suffering the most and or not being uh, fully uh, compensated for uh, their issues, injuries, uh, and uh, lack of paycheck. And and I, you know, I, there's a big sort of hole in my uh, my sensibility about about that and how that can be. Uh, there are so, there are a number of different sort of areas where that is being addressed, but. Um, I I still see plenty of gaps.
1: Yeah, Jim Otto couldn't even walk hardly whenever he retired. So, yeah, there's definitely only time will tell how it all plays out. But to your point about, um, I guess, people who aren't remembered as well or underserved, as a listener, I feel like... The world Football League kind of holds a special place in your heart that I don't think other leagues do, and that's just kind of my feel as a listener I'm curious if if it's fair for me to say, and if so, why is that the case
0: no that's that's a good assessment i think um I think that in my mind and i'm looking i'm I'm staring at a, a copy of the gary davidson uh quote unquote autobiography calling "Breaking the Game Wide Open." Uh, and uh, it was written in 1974, I think, and it's his sort of, I guess, at the pinnacle of his powers, if you will, if you call him that, uh, when he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking about how great uh, his life and uh, his story was by uh, being part of the ABA, the World Hockey Association, and this WFL thing. Um, so I, I think, though, the WFL, in my mind, uh, is Probably the best, brightest, shining example of um, sheer folly uh, that uh, we've kind of really ever uh, explored on this show. And maybe it's almost like the um, in the pantheon of um, uh, uh, of craziness uh, that, um, you know, in many cases I. I would actually have thought there would have been more of these kind of debacles to have been on earth. And certainly we've seen some, um, but this one is, you know, was the ultimate sort of house of cards. Um, and it failed so spectacularly that, um, it it just, to me is, is, uh, it's, it's like the biggest klieg light you can have on the defunct sports stage. I, I, and every team, uh, the, the financial issues uh teams moving in the middle of the season uh you know completely reconstituting a, a second season um uh, the big name grabs right out of the pages of the aba and the wha playbook um the uh the the, the collapse of the second season not even finishing the season i mean it just it, the, the different colored pants by position i mean the 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 colors and the, and the uh, of the teams uh, the logos, uh, the way that the franchises were secured or unsecured, uh, as creditors might uh, uh, describe it, I, it just to me is just it is the ultimate circus, and I to me it's just it's I, I don't think there's any league that touches it, and it was only around for two years for not even two years for God's sakes.
1: Yeah, whatever, uh, Mark Speck, I think is his name.
0: Yeah, Mark's, you know, Mark's episodes have been probably amongst the most uh, uh, listened to. I, the Detroit Wheels episode, um, a couple of others we've talked about. The, but yes, this, there's just
1: there's plenty more stories there, and that's that's the ultimate defunctness. Well, I think he sums it up best at the end of the episode. He's reading something from his book where he says um, they all. One of the players said they kept telling us lies, and the only thing, the only truthful thing they told us was that we were bankrupt.
2: Yeah, you I know, think it that
1: just, you know, know, it just it just true. feels like that it, that kind of sums up the entire league's two year year and a half existence perfectly.
0: Yeah, I and I again, we've had some really interesting sort of delves into that. Like we did a great episode, one of our earliest episodes with um, a guy named Howard Zuckerman who was a producer for the old TVS Television Network, which as your listeners may know was um the uh It's an independent television network. It was created by Eddie Einhorn, Uh, but Howard Zuckerman was like he was like the director, producer. He was telling us stories about they they would park their trucks like in the middle of the country and find out which team was still around to know which game to go to the next week. I mean that was that nuts, and that's that feels like a movie to me. That feels like a miniseries. That feels like a. A streaming couple of uh, episodes i it just seems like there's so much there and, and gary davidson god bless is still around from what i understand uh we've been trying to figure out a way to get to him uh we did however sort of tangentially get to i think the other guy who's on the mount rushmore um dennis murphy right who was part of the aba uh story the wha story for sure uh th- these are you know these are guys who you know kind of went to the well and uh you know thought that their their fame and fortune would come by uh, creating these new leagues and um, you know getting franchises and uh, you know filling the blanks uh, maybe later on as the as time went on and uh, some many cases they uh, they ran out of crayons for the coloring books. All right what's this box of awesome oh man. Hey, this summer Bespoke Post is here to take your adventures to the next level with their new lineup of must-have box of awesome collections. Bespoke Post partners with small businesses and emerging brands to bring you the most unique goods every month. Uh, I have been uh, lucky enough to receive one of these uh, boxes and the one I chose is called the Weekender uh, and it's a gorgeous uh, overnight bag uh, in uh, beautiful colors. Uh, Mine is in olive with... Uh, brown trim, uh, but it comes in all kinds of different colors, and it's just perfect for those weekend getaways. Uh, You don't need uh, sort of that valise or that uh, overnight garment bag or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, And it's it's fantastic, and it comes from a a company that I never would have heard of uh, called Line of Trade, and they've really done a gorgeous job with this thing, and I've been using it uh, literally the last couple of weeks for all my little travel. Uh, needs and, and so no matter what you're into, Box of Awesome has you covered. From travel and outdoor gear to breezy summer styles and grooming goods, Box of Awesome has collections for just about every part of your life. Now, uh, I notice a whole bunch of other ones. If you're sort of into bourbon sampling, if you're an outdoorsman, uh, if you enjoy sort of uh, uh, on-the-go uh, beverages, especially uh, when you're out there in the hot sun, uh, perhaps you, uh, you're a big taco fan. Uh, and you want to sort of reinvigorate your uh, your process of uh, of creating and uh, and uh, enjoying uh, taco night at your own home. All those and many many more, fantastic and very creative things. It's clothing. Some of them are food related. Some of them have to do with uh, personal grooming. They're just awesome, literally uh, and figuratively. Collections of stuff, uh, and uh, they're yours uh, to peruse and subscribe to. And it's a, it's a tremendous concept. And uh, again, Box of Awesome, it's uh, it's something that you can take advantage of. To so get started, you take the quiz at boxofawesome.com, and your answers will help them pick the right Box of Awesome for you. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories, as I just hinted at to you, and it's free to sign up. Plus, you can also skip a month or cancel at any time. Each box costs only 45 bucks, but it's got over, at least guaranteed to be over $70 worth of gear inside. It's a really cool concept. Check them out. And, of course, we've got an incentive for you to do so. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code GOODSEATS at checkout. Yes, that's boxofawesome.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 20% off your first Box, thank you, box of awesome, and uh, please uh, let's enjoy the rest of our conversation.
1: Do you have any memories watching the WFL when you were growing up?
0: Very vaguely, uh, I remember. Um, I do remember that they um, had. Uh, I remember Merle Harmon, of course. He was the voice of TVS generally. Uh, I remember, um, uh, they had a third person in the booth each game from the world of Hollywood or television, that kind of Burt Reynolds was on once George Plimpton was on, uh, as the third person once, uh, they had a whole bunch of other people and stuff. I, I, and I vaguely remember trying to find when the game was going to be on. I grew up in New York, so it was on channel five there to the old, uh, now Fox station with the old W N E W television um metro media i guess at the time um but you know what this tbs network right d- doesn't mean that all uh, every station cleared the game live back in the day same with the bowl games that tbs did and Mizlu was another one um but so i remember i remember the uh i remember looking at the tv guide to see which teams were playing and occasionally mm-hmm. tuning in um to me it was fascinating because it's like what is this thing
2: now,
1: why do you think that some defunct leagues are continue to live on like the WFL or like the USFL um either through internet fan pages or you know mass market memorabilia and why do you think others are just kind of completely lost to history like the American Football Association or uh the Continental Football League?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um I think memorabilia has a lot to do with it. Um and the realities of uh trading cards and um and eBay and may, maybe coming back in, in the realm of NFTs, you know, where they're uh, truly digitally authenticated and and um uh fraud free, so to speak. Um I, I think some of it has to do with that. I think that's maybe why baseball has lasted uh, so long in terms of like, being the ultimate sort of his- history project. Because um, I think baseball has been, was the earliest sport really in this country and was merchandised probably earlier than most of the professional sports today. Um, and uh, I, it just feels to me like there is, it's probably the sort of the uh, quintessential portal, I guess, uh, to people's memories of those sports and leagues, right? Is that program, that, that ticket stub, that um, that pennant that uh, signed, you know, the 8x10 glossy, I don't know. Um, I think it also, uh, there's also a bit of uh, media involved, meaning if it was sort of a, you know, a 1960s onward kind of league situation, there's probably a fair chance, especially as, as the years roll on, that there would have been either radio slash audio broadcasts. Or television now, video broadcasts. Uh, And that just ensures stuff going on. I mean, you know, YouTube, right? Let's talk about YouTube for a second. Please. Um, It's God's gift to any sports fan, a lot of other genres too, for that matter. But, um, you know, and there's more being made every day, but just the ability to find those clips of the WFL or to see that there was, you know, what the AFL actually looked like in full color, aside from the occasional documentary on Showtime or something. Um, It's all there, right? And, and, And here's the kicker, right? All the stuff that's come since literally gets put up there forever, right? So every single game highlights as well as full actual games of the AAF, right? In its one glorious season, will be forever etched in in the annals of, of digital media, right? So it's never going away. So there's going to be people who go back and go, holy crap, this thing existed? I mean, I it's almost like discovering old television shows now that all these streaming services are out. And they, they're trying to figure out, mine, all this stuff for, for library and stuff. Like, I'm a huge David Letterman fan from the 80s and 90s, right? So there's this guy named Don, um, Don Geller who literally, it's just like his life's work he's like 70 years old now. He literally has every episode from all the David Letterman shows digitized and he curates all kinds of stuff and they all live on YouTube, right? No, There's no TV network with the rights to David Letterman show anymore, and, but it's there, it's fascinating and it allows me, I can go back at any time and you know, I can turn it on and port it over to the TV set and I, just like you, uh, we can watch whole games if we want to, right? There's these guys uh, who were trying to get on the show. They're still reluctant. I think they want to get this stuff up and running called the Dead Football League or the Dead Football Network. You're yeah. probably aware of them, right? Yeah, and absolutely. They literally, they literally stream games from all these forgotten leagues and stuff. Mm-hmm. And literally, it's like tuning into a kaleidoscope of of football history. It's if you're into that stuff, it's fantastic. It's great. I just I find it endlessly fascinating. So I, I think media has something to do with it. I think nostalgia and I think uh, memorabilia has something to do with it. Um, and look, this, the Continental Football League is certainly in a. We want to get into some of those stories. Um, you know, regional. Uh, how many programs? How many fans? Not many. Right, National Bowling League. Very challenging to find stuff about that. Thank God yeah. we found the good doctor with his uh, his, his uh, almost thesis uh, on the on this on on the story. But it's there. And here's the kicker, and this is the thing I love about this genre, um, football and otherwise. I'm constantly amazed, uh, not only at other people who somehow latch onto this topic and, and find it similarly interesting, but that there's always a new discovery to be found. Either something in the microfiche or a piece of something that came out in a video or somebody died and their attic or their basement had a box of something that nobody's ever seen before. And that, to me is like it's like a treasure hunt i I just i live for that kind of stuff. that's how sad my life has become, but that that's fascinating now don't get me wrong i'm I'm not you know, i I used to be a collector I don't collect any of that stuff anymore i just I kind of got over all that but i I think that that to me is always there are always going to be new discoveries about what used to be i'm i'm I' certain of that, and that to me just you know keeps me enthusiastic about i don't know continuing to do this silly little show every week. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't think it's sad at all. I'm in the same camp as you where YouTube for me, I use YouTube more than anything. I use YouTube more than cable, more than Netflix, Prime. I mean, that to me has just absolutely been the best resource that I could ever possibly imagine. I watch so many old games. You know, there's a lot of subscribers I go to that have like long form highlights, like half hour long from vintage games. You know, I can watch a lot of international football games that way. It really has been a savior for me, like as a researcher and as a fan. I mean, I just think it's incredible. And I think a lot of that kind of goes to, you know, the, the nostalgia effect as well. I mean, I'm 26 years old, so a lot of what I'm watching happened way before my time. But even if I'm watching a game from like 2008, I could be like, oh, man, I forgot about him. You know, he was a good player, wasn't a Hall of Fame or anything like that. But you still get like that warm feeling, watching games on tape, that grainy image. You know, you really kind of transport yourself into a world that you weren't a part of, but still feels familiar. You know,
0: I, I will say there is one thing that I've I've learned from all <clears throat> all of this football specifically, but also to all the sports and all the things that we've discussed um, is that there's absolutely trends that come and go, and um, especially you know amongst younger sports fans who are who sort of latch onto the show or have their comments and stuff and their their uh, opinions. Um, I think a lot of them. Once they sort of get into a couple of our episodes, they sort of recognize, hey, you know what, there's not a whole lot that's new under the sun. A lot of these ideas, right. a lot of these th- a whole bunch of things, you know, really are, are, you know, go back to some of the earliest days. I mean, uh, you know, the idea of single entity uh, versus a franchise, right? That, that's, that's, I, I, the more we've sort of unearthed that, that goes all the way back to debates back in the late around baseball and how that should look. Um it just it's fascinating to me to see the same uh arcs of labor strife uh economics uh uh, uh how fans are or aren't part of uh, of the mix um owners and their grandiosities uh their their beliefs in, in big business and and what could, what could be um it's just fascinating to watch these similar themes play over and over again. And it's that old proverb, right? Those who ignore history are, you know, largely burdened with having to repeat it. And um, that that seems to play out uh, in our little um, four-year exploration thus far.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. And, and in your... Uh, within the shows that you've done so far is there one football team that you have really been captivated by either a team that you still think about to this day after having a guest on or even just doing your own research you just really grew to have a passion for the story that was being told
0: hmm um
1: yeah i guess i'm
0: gonna go with the new york titans mm. okay um and why uh Certainly, well, it was years before I was born, um, but it's a New York team um, that I kind of didn't really know about. And obviously, they live on in the Jets. But I don't think any—I think there's at least two generations of fans that don't even know that that the New York Jets, you know, before they moved to Shea Stadium, and you know, ultimately by the end of the decade, you know, proved that the AFL was not only worthy to compete with the NFL but could actually beat. The, the legacy teams in the NFL with Joe Namath and, and all. Um, I was just fascinated to go back over time, over the years, and learn that there was this franchise that was placed in a decrepit, you know, fallen apart polo grounds that, you know, had to be a New York team in the AFL, right? Because you can't start a league without being in the biggest media market in the country. And that that team was... I want to say flimsily created, but it certainly was not the one with the most amount of money behind it. And, um, you know, everything from the logo and the colors, and but it seems like it's completely been steamrolled. And we've seen this, right? We see this a lot with uh, all kinds of big pro leagues who don't want to remember or recall uh, teams uh, of the past or where teams were previously located. Uh, the histories of those teams, which, you know, historians and and super fans kind of care about, but, you know, leagues and uh, uh, the the money behind them don't necessarily want to. Um, To me, that's like an unearthed, like part of the story that um, any Jets fan, frankly, should know about, because it's all without the Titans, there ain't no Jets, right? Um, Now, that said, since 1969, nice. Most people would care less about there ain't no jets, right? Because they haven't really done much. But I, I, that, right. I mean, but my point is to me, so that's I think that that is the team that kind of sticks out in my mind. A Don Maynard, and and I, there's all this. To me, that's a fascinating two and a half, almost three years, and it's also, by the way, part of the story of New York at the time, right? So Robert Moses, uh, the the reconstruction of the of the city to be much more accommodating to to cars. The, the, the advent of Shea Stadium, right? Why did that come come to play? Because two baseball teams left in 1957, right? And they wanted to put a new baseball team in there in this Continental League, which we've also explored as part of that, too, right? So without that, you don't have, hey, here's a new stadium being built. We could also put a football team in there. So it, it, it's weird, but it gets into all kinds of different layers of history. And, you know, um, you could be, I guess, forgiven for not knowing. That from 1960 to 1963, there was an NFL, excuse me, a an AFL football franchise known as the New York Titans. Um, and that, to me, is a really good example of the kind of stuff we love to obsess about.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't listened to that episode, but I did listen to the one about the Jets. Um, I can't remember what the author's name was, but he wrote a book about the Jets outside of Namath. Um, yeah, Bob Letterer. Yeah, it was a great yeah. episode. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really good episode because, I mean, that's a... It's a team that I don't think a lot of people really think about. I mean, obviously they're gonna live in you know, in the people's memories forever because of the upset of Super Bowl three, but it's fascinating when you watch that actual Super Bowl and you kind of see how everybody really had to pull their own weight. I mean, Joe didn't really have the best game he's ever played of his life. You know, Matt Snell had to carry the rock a good amount, Riggins and uh Don Maynard. I mean, I think it was a really good approach to uh a story I feel like has been told often, but he really approached it from a unique angle. So I really enjoyed that episode too.
0: Well, thanks. I, I um uh, th- we obviously focus on sort of incarnations, I guess, and, and the Jets obviously still exist today, but the AFL version of the Jets don't, right? And that to me was almost that—that's that's obviously the exclamation point of their AFL lives was was that winning that championship, right? And many would argue it's never been the same since, but. Um, to me, that's all part of the tableau. And and look, as as you know, uh, and I appreciate all of your um, uh, in-depth listening because you've had some great questions, and it shows that you've actually listened, which you know reminds me to uh, ask yourselves to have your uh, your health your mental health checked because uh, you know there are other things in life than listening to every single one of our two hundred and some odd episodes. But um, I still appreciate it. I the um, it is um, uh, not only is it, is it fascinating to me. I'm just um, I'm just amazed at just how much there's uh, still out there uh, to unearth, and um, and how many other people out there find it to be similarly interesting. Um, I, um, you know, I, I just wonder, <laughs> I wonder what's ahead. I mean, there's so many different stories that, that are percolating. You may, you may know that if I, in my my social media feeds, I'll I'll occasionally post something that I call future episode watch, mm-hmm. right? So, and I, I said it earlier in the in our conversation. I mean, this is kind of the gift that keeps on giving, right? It's like it's like the old Jay Leno commercial with Doritos. You know, we, if you 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 finish, well, don't worry, we'll make more. Um, you know, the Oakland A's might be the next ones, right? So, right, yeah, stay tuned, right? Um, so, I it, as it the it's weird, but this storyline, this niche, is ironically timely as today's headlines, and that's you know we we love that stuff, and that's kind of why we keep doing it, and until we're probably told otherwise. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and speaking of time, like with the A's possibly relocating, I mean, personally, I also love your Baltimore episodes, because I didn't really realize, um, because I I have, I know you had Jack Gilden on your show, and I, he was actually one of the first people I interviewed for my show, too. And I was really shocked, I guess, in a way to find out how much of an inferiority complex that Baltimore had, and really like how the Colts were as significant to the Citizens of Baltimore as like a high school team would be in rural Texas, so like and whenever I've noticed that when you have a an episode about Baltimore you're trying to kind of search for an answer on where does their legacy exist, right because you know Indianapolis isn't really gonna give much consideration to what happened in Baltimore, you know they have created their own history, and Baltimore has moved on with the Ravens, and then you go in the stallions and the stars it's like there there's a lot of uh kind of i uh how do I say? Kind of like ghosts in a way. And I know that was another person that you had on the show who made that documentary about the ghost of thirty third street.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's I, we kind of a lot of times when there are teams that um either don't exist literally, they came to a cul-de-sac and just, just died an ugly death. Um or they've gone on to other incarnations. Um I just I'm always interested for I don't know for completism to find or to understand or ask and maybe in a lot of times there actually isn't an answer where do these histories officially live Mm -hmm. and you know for leagues and teams that are gone completely um that can be an open-ended question but you know when you talk about say the Minnesota North Stars of the NHL well that's a team that kind of that broke into different parts and went into different places and then when a team comes back after having been abandoned as a market in the case of Minneapolis St Paul you know do they get the opportunity to kind of rekindle that and bring that back in since it is a return of NHL hockey to that market um I think I think the NFL is, it's been a little it's a little harder but I mean I think the Raiders thing is going to be interesting right over time right I mean I, I just I literally yesterday just saw you probably did too this this new artist's rendering of this new end zone party thing that they're going to have at at Allegiant Stadium for the Raiders. It's literally like you know bar service, and it's like it's like it's almost like going to a strip club, but in the end zone. Maybe maybe Sans the the the, the scantily clad uh, lady. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's part of it. But you, you look Vegas. at. This- it's Vegas, baby. Sure. You look, but you look at the renderings. It's like, oh, do we really need a Tau nightclub?
2: Right. right
0: yeah. I mean, I, okay. So i put that aside, but you know, if I'm an Oakland fan, I mean, from like the first ver, the first version, the AFL version, right. And even the NFL version before they moved to LA and then back to Oakland, I'm talking about the first real original Oakland, you know, lineage from AFL into NFL and, and, and the true, you know, Al Davis years and the stick and the, all that stuff. Right. And I and I look at what these games are going to look like on television and in person in Las Vegas. I don't know. I, I, I the, to me, there's a break there. I I'm, I'm not saying I enjoyed the Raiders and the way that they yeah. bent the rules a lot, you know, and, and played their sort of brand of football. But it was a brand. Right, it was. Yeah. You knew what you're getting, right? It was black and blue, literally, or black and gray in this case. But I, I don't know. It just feels hollow to me. I, you know. So to me, where does that? I'm going to say that. So where does that Oakland Raiders legacy live? Uh, officially, I guess it's going to be in Las Vegas. That's where the Raiders live now. Okay, and I guess that's the the, the politically correct uh, uh, answer to that question. But if I'm a an abandoned oakland raider fan and i can't and i grew up you know not not rooting for the 49ers nor ever will right. i don't know my allegiances are now kind of probably you know up for grabs uh, but maybe, maybe i don't even come back to the game anymore maybe i don't care anymore maybe i, maybe I just move on with my life maybe, maybe there's another league that comes in and says hey we're gonna play in oakland because oakland was an abandoned market right and we've seen this before too So does Birmingham. So does Memphis. So I mean, all these there's a lot of these cities that, you know, uh, are still have great football fans, but, you know, somehow have been left behind. Um, There's an example, you know, and God bless the Raiders. I mean, I, you know, I take the payday, too, I guess. But I don't know. It doesn't seem like the the, the Raiders that got us to where we are today.
1: Well, they returned to Oakland once. I'm not going to rule out that it could happen again down the road.
0: Well, you're, you're more of an optimist. I, I, I don't, I think it's, you know, I, I, oh, I'm not,
1: I'm I'm not saying I, I think it's going to happen, but yeah, I guess in today's world, you can never rule it out. I mean, uh, Oakland, yeah. I think is one of those teams too, that will like how we talked about how some teams just live on. Like o- Oakland, I feel like even though they're in Vegas, when I hear the Raiders, I still immediately think of Oakland. Like Vegas is separate from the Raiders as of right now, in my mind, unless they were to have some real success over the next few years or so i'm I'm still going to associate the raiders with oakland
0: yeah i mean and, and you know frankly this is where the chief marketing officer comes into play because you right. can utilize it right and and arguably say hey we're going to be we're going to we're going to reach out to all of the fans from the east bay eastward shall we say to las vegas and we're going to claim all of that geography for ourselves let the you know let the northern uh wine country and the bay and then the silicon valley let them have the 49ers right but the rest of it and beyond and you know maybe there's got to be some ways to sort of make it happen but i it's still i still it still rings hollow to me and look let's be honest too right we we all know what's going on with the a's right now you know it's it's gamesmanship right it's you got to do what you got to do to get you know communities and the tax dollars and the tax breaks and all that kind of stuff and and I think that's actually even a bigger source of ill for what, uh, for what pro sports looks like. I mean, it's, it's real estate, right? You look at what, look at what the Braves are doing. I don't mean to get off the football topic, but you look at what the Braves done right in in Atlanta, right? You you live in the area, right? I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but I I, I'll start, I'll start with mine. (laughs) You know, um, I I don't, you know, I get it right. You create, a new ballpark for yourself in a well-off suburb, um, and you you build it as part of a larger real estate complex uh, that gives you other revenue streams and uh, more control, I guess, over your financial future. But okay, but take that put that aside, and then say, okay, baseball, the Braves, a team that's lived probably one of the longest lineages of of all of baseball all of sports in the united states and they're playing in this stadium that's literally like part of an office park um and i've been there but i'm just it's my understanding and my reading and what i've seen on television i don't know that feels a little hollow to me um but then again maybe i'm just being an old curmudgeon what do you think i mean i to me that's what i fear is starting to is the next phase of pro sports and and i, I don't know it just feels more like it's real estate development and instead of sport
1: I personally am okay with it because I believe the surrounding area really is state-of-the-art and I haven't been to too many other baseball stadiums but you have to sell more than just the game at this point right like you really have to try to reach fans who maybe aren't even fans of the sport like personally I've been to the they, they call it the battery and I've been there Several times, but I've only gone to a few Braves games because, you know, for someone like me, I enjoy the atmosphere there. I enjoy the bars, the restaurants, the amenities that it provides. I can see where some people maybe like the more traditional avenue of a ballpark. Um, but compared to where the Braves were playing at, I think it was Turner Field, I mean, it's an area that I think they could have tried to spruce up, but they'd really been in for a while. And I think oftentimes you'll see what happens is a lot of these teams move. And I think you, you can come and, and attest to this because the com, the, um, the stadium commissioner or whoever oversees it just doesn't take care of it or update it to a certain point. You know, There's always going to be a better offer out there, but I think to a certain point, if the current tenants aren't going to try to keep you there, then it only makes sense to look elsewhere
0: no i and i understand that argument but trust me and i the economics of it and, and look uh, the the casual fan uh i get that too i get the um you know i just but i you know i i remember this going to the first time the city field in in new york for the, mm-hmm. the first couple of mets games in the new, new place um it's great i by the way i think it's better than yankee stadium which is more like a mausoleum than anything else but um uh, it feels like it's an amusement park you know yeah uh, and, and i don't get me wrong you want to have fun at the ballpark no doubt right um but when the game feels like it's starting to become more of a sideshow versus the main event that's when i start and again i'm not naive to the idea of of how business runs in pro sports um but um i just fear every time the game becomes more the background like i think with betting i think betting is yeah an interesting development right um and you know look gee what could go wrong right the sanctity of the sport the competitiveness right i mean the astros with the uh, the, what could go wrong seriously what could go wrong with betting and sports right after years and years and years and years of pushing back on that although pete rose right yeah you don't think that something's not going to happen there i really i mean and, and that's that's when it's too late when when that sanctity of the competition gets somehow breached, I we're all in big danger then I, I don't know if, I don't know if sports ever recovers from
1: something like that. Did you ever read the book um, Interference by Dan moldea? I have not. Yeah, he he was a journalist that predominantly he reports on organized crime. I don't know if he's still writing, but he, he wrote a book, I think, in the late eighties, maybe it was the early nineties, as essentially about the relationship between various NFL owners and gamblers and kind of the relationship between some players and bookies that they knew and about placing bets. It kinda of, it kinda of cuts deeper than the uh like Alex Karras, Paul Horning suspension. And it's an interesting book to kind of see, I guess, the relationship. I mean, there, there's no finite evidence that any game was ever fixed or that any points were shaved, aside from well, I, I don't know if there wasn't actually successful. There was an attempt in the 40s in the 1946 championship game, but yeah, stuff like that just definitely kind of show and, and also details sort of like the NFL Securities Department um, attempts to thwart these efforts. But it does actually show how there is money unsavory money and unsavory personalities that do flock to sports betting in that sense and today it seems like there's so much money at stake with the athletes themselves that maybe it's going to be hard to persuade them or compromise them but yeah it, it definitely does feel like there could be an unsavory element that can creep into there yeah i
0: mean i i just i i just can't imagine it's I, I look i it's it's very interesting right i mean six years ago seven years ago this wasn't even a conversation right it wasn't even right. a, yeah. a possibility i mean las vegas being the home of a an actual pro sports franchise in a, in a top tier league um was un, un unthinkable uh, but it exists today i mean uh cannabis right you know is is uh is essentially legalized now not the federal level but essentially almost everything but right um mm-hmm. uh, so there are a lot of things that, you know, just times move on and times evolve. But I, again, I just, I, I keep wondering about the sport. Look, I, I live in Chicago now. Uh, my wife and um, her family, uh, you know, I married into this cub Cub fandom thing, which is is really more of an illness than it is anything else. Uh, but I tolerate it because, um, you know, um, that's what good husbands do. Uh, but, you know, you, you see Wrigley Field, right? It's the, you know, it's the the friendly confines. But. You know, it's it's now one big real estate project, right? It's all about the parks and the buildings around it, and the hotel now, and um, and again, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to sort of be nostalgic for the old days. I, hell, I wasn't even here, you know, uh, until 2000, right? But but mm-hmm. I do understand the I, I do understand the history. I do understand, you know, that the average fan is being priced out of games, uh, and I understand that it's you walk in now to into Wrigleyville, it's become more like a theme park, and you know. If that's what it takes to keep fans and casual fans interested in coming and paying for the games and stuff, it's great. But I, you know, I go to games when I go to games, or maybe I'll go back again soon. Um, You know, it feels to me more about you know having a party and and you know you could care less about the game. And I, you know, I don't know. There's a game going on here, and I, I, you know, you're you're entitled to do what you want to do while you're at the game. But um, I don't know. The sport is like kind of there, and I hate to see anything you know, that kind of makes the, um, makes the sport itself kind of suffer. And, you know, I if look, football's probably got the biggest to lose, right? Because they've got the most money sort of at stake. And uh, I worry about that too.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of an, that's one argument that a lot of people make when they flock to college football. I mean, living in Atlanta, I'm surrounded by a lot more college football fans, you know, whether it's Alabama, Auburn, UGA, obviously, But people just say, you know, they love the atmosphere of college football because it's the game. You know, obviously when you go to, I mean, the Falcon Stadium, Mercedes-Benz, a State of the Yard. But I'm telling you, Tim, when I was there, I went to a game, I think, well, it had to be two years ago because last year there was no one there, but they were playing the Rams. And I'm telling you, man, like it was a great stadium, but the team just was obviously in a bad season. And... A buddy of mine, we got nosebleeds, but we could go down to the next deck without any trouble. So it's like, you know, you have, this whole, you have this whole experience that is drawing people away from the actual seats and just persuading them or motivating them just to walk around to see the state-of-the-art stadium and all the amenities that it could provide. Whereas like with a college game, you go to UGA in Athens, you're in the seat with, God, 80 other thousand people.
0: Yeah, and you got to pay attention to the game.
1: <laughs> yeah, precisely. Well, every shouting in your ear. You have to see what the excitement's about. I mean, I've, I've been to Pittsburgh a couple times for a game. and Heinz Field, I, I never got to see Three Rivers Stadium, but you know, Heinz Field, I think, has done a good job of still making the stadium uh, contemporary while also making keeping the focus on the actual game. I mean, in the surrounding area, they have some really cool spots, but it's nothing that's going to draw you away from the, the actual on-field play.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see um what the stadium and in-person experience evolves to mm-hmm. uh, as the next number of months and years play out in a post-pandemic world. And look, I you know, I, I I'm not sure that we'll ever not I I'm not sure we're past other pandemics and other sort of uh, issues and stuff too. I to think that it just sort of reflexively goes back to what it used to be. I think maybe in the short term it might because it's just people been you know, they haven't been to a game in a couple of years and they really just they're dying to go. And but I, I think over time, though, I'm, I'm not sure that the dynamic is going to be the same. And and it'll be interesting to see if, if these especially these newest constructed um, facilities uh, are able to sort of maximize all those revenues that uh, were kind of comprised back when the pandemic wasn't even a thing yet. So I right. I don't know. I, I just think the live fan experience is going to change and I'm not sure anybody really fully knows how it's going to evolve over time. I just simply fill in the stadiums back up because there's some level of herd immunity. I don't know. I psychically, I'm not sure everybody's really prepared to do that anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Only time will tell. Um, I have just one more football question that I'm curious to get your opinion on and then we'll wrap this up. So you've had a lot of conversations about um defunct leagues and in markets that never have had an NFL franchise kind of going back to like the, uh, the topic of like Oakland and what used to be Vegas in, in talking to various guests and authors that you have have spoken with, do you find like one consistent theme or maybe not one consistent theme, but consistent themes across these um, off-brand football teams in cities like Orlando, um, Birmingham, San Antonio, and Sacramento and so on and so forth that kind of draws people in only for it to fail after a few years like do do you notice like consistent theme between these cities or do you think each market is kind of unique and can't be really clustered together
0: um i think there are two elements um one is that there's a reason why uh these markets uh tend to uh make the initial shortlists when new leagues are are being thought of because they do have some level uh, of either football history heritage or uh at the collegiate level um uh some affinity right there's 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 a proven base of fans uh for quote-unquote football
2: mm-hmm. uh, and
0: i think all those markets and then some uh tend to prove that i think the other though issue um that comes into play and we've sort of explored this a little bit on some of our other episodes is uh let's call them smaller markets. not that there's anything wrong with that uh but there's a um, a long standing unwritten sort of understanding uh that having a professional sports team, especially that of the quote unquote big four you can maybe argue this you know a few more sort of uh, wrinkles to that sort of law or that rule uh will connote. Major league status to said city, right? So our conversations around the Indiana Pacers, so the ABA, very much rooted uh, into that. I think um, when Lamar Hunt uh, moved the Dallas Texans of the AFL to Kansas City uh, to become the Chiefs, although as listeners may remember, they were actually going to be called the Kansas City Texans, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, uh, Lamar was talked out of it. I I find that hard to believe, but but. Michael McCambridge swears that that's a true story. So I, I he's the, he's the master of that story. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight him. Um, but I, I do think that um, uh, there is a is always a desire of a of a city. I see it now. We had our conversation with Dan Issel, uh about a year ago about the ABA, and uh, you know he's he's trying to get Louisville to get the next NBA franchise, right? Um, so I, I I you know. I think there is something inherent in pride, uh, civic spirit, uh, and a belief that at least a major league pro team of some sort uh, is uh, equal to uh, major league status uh, as a city, and I think that drives you know a lot of interest in and around that kind of stuff. So, you know, and it sometimes it takes a while. We had a great conversation with um, Upton Bell. I highly recommend that episode to everybody. Um Upton Bell is the son of Burt Bell, the uh one of the most influential uh, NFL uh, commissioners uh, uh in the entire history of the league. Uh and and you know, he was a guy who bought a WFL franchise, the New York Stars, which were barely perceptible on the New York sports media landscape playing at Downing Stadium and, and on on Randall's Island and just, you know, in in almost uh under the cloak of darkness, uh, and moved it to Charlotte. Now, Charlotte at that time in the 19 1974, oh. um, you know, was not the sort of, you know, major league market it's become, but that to me, that's, that's fun to watch stuff, right? Cause Sacramento's really come into its own. The Kings moving their NBA and maybe getting an MLS fran- I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of Louisville, I think is, is absolutely one of those cities sort of on the cusp. They're one pro franchise away from, uh, you know, I think Salt Lake is really, and there's a lot of sort of mid-sized cities that just, you know, we'll see if, how. look at Nashville um, over the last number of years, right? So um, to me, those markets have always been sort of on the cusp, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if, whether it's another football league of some sort or some other sport, that kind of puts a Birmingham uh, over the top. Uh, it certainly happened to Orlando uh, Memphis is certainly coming along, all these cities, right? Um, and I think you'll see more of them uh, to come. And again, look, who thought Las Vegas would ever get to that level, uh, aside from being a destination? Look at it now. It's got two, maybe going on three, top-tier right. uh, sports franchises.
1: Yes, or, or Orlando for me is a tough one, man, because you have three teams in Florida already, and you also have – well, I guess maybe you would never get a franchise in the NFL that would move there. But I guess I could see another competing – lead that could draw an audience in central florida it just kind of feels like you had the jacksonville jaguars in north florida they capture the northern audience miami and south and tampa bay in this sort of central location but i guess it, I, honestly i cannot
0: i cannot imagine jacksonville staying in jacksonville I, I could easily see them moving to orlando and regionalizing that franchise and doubling yeah. down and and, and Doubling their money in the process, I think it's it's absolutely achievable. No disrespect to Jacksonville, but Jacksonville's a, you know, I, I remember the Jacksonville team in the North American Soccer League uh, episode this week of uh, the former New England team in. I mean, Jacksonville is. is I, I've been to Jacksonville. I went to the Super Bowl there. It was fantastic. It's it's a, it's just a lovely city. They got some great food there. I love the layout of the of the bay there and stuff. um But you know, there's how already, you know they, they, they're already hemming and hawing and. And the stadium is not, you know, any anything uh, that's going to last on a, on a longer period of time and stuff. And I, you know, Orlando's been sitting there waiting. And I, it wouldn't surprise me, and I think it might be a win win for everybody. Um, so it would not surprise me if Orlando steps up to the NFL plate and becomes the natural, at least, uh, uh, rival, to, much more natural rival to to Tampa, um, and uh, you know, by extension, you know, maybe Miami. But I, I think just that I five rivalry idea is.
1: Makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it does always feel like Jacksonville is kind of the franchise that everybody thinks will be re- relocated at some point. I mean, for a while, they've always thought London, but I think that's a lot more difficult than people want to admit.
0: Yeah, yeah I, you know, I and again, I just I'm just looking at the tea leaves. And again, it's all part of the game of stadiums, and gamesmanship and brinksmanship and stuff. Right, yeah. And look, it's also a bigger market. Let's be honest. It's a bigger television market. Yeah. And... um. I'm not sure, frankly, how the NFL carves up Orlando, but I think you, it, it's, like the, it's like what we talked about with the Raiders, right? It, it, the marketing opportunity for the Raiders now, I mean, Las Vegas, by comparison to Oakland uh, and the San Francisco-Oakland uh, metropolitan area, it's, it's night and day in terms of market size, right? Las Vegas is not nearly as large. You can fit four, almost five Las Vegases in terms of population uh, into the television market that is the Bay Area right i think the same logic applies uh for um for jacksonville and orlando and if you can somehow harmonize those markets in some respect may, maybe you play a game in jacksonville right not like yeah. the packers did in in milwaukee for years you know they play a, ga- a game or two in milwaukee county stadium um I, regionality i think i think can be the the win win there um and and keep everybody somewhat happy
1: yeah absolutely I, yeah i agree do you want to give the audience a little bit of a preview of what they can um expect from good seats still available oh, you mean, if, if they haven't fallen
0: asleep already of course uh, <laughs> no, uh, this audience
1: this audience loves it i don't know
0: i appreciate your uh your listeners tolerating my uh my uh nutso answers and uh i i do appreciate your your, your listening and, and your great questions i i'm just I'm, I'm shocked that you would have listened to all these uh so intently i i'm i'm honored and um uh overwhelmed. Um it's good seats still available obviously wherever good podcasts are found. Or even frankly where where crappy ones are found. We're, we're there too. Uh, just subscribe and rate right, right next
1: to this one. one. <laughs> oh come on.
0: And the uh and the uh the the website uh for just the uninitiated we have all of our episodes there and just it's very basic but we'll someday when we have you know more time on our hands uh augment it uh it's good seats available dot com all one word Uh, all the social links, all that stuff. Follow us on Twitter, good seats still, and blah, blah, blah. But um, we appreciate uh, any new listeners. And by the way, the library keeps building, right? So there's no, um, you're not missing anything if you haven't been following us for four years, uh, like Aaron has. Um, Well, actually, he's only been a year and a half, right? But there's a library there, and chances are there's probably at least the beginnings of a topic you're probably interested in. Uh, And uh, if we haven't gotten to yours yet, uh, hang tight. Send us an email, and uh, we'll hopefully get to yours sooner rather
1: than later. You mentioned this before. Do you plan on doing a live episode at some point? I think I heard you say.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly want to do all that stuff, right? So um, I want to do some uh, a live episode or two. I'd love to do some. Um, yeah, we could do a book club or a movie club of some sort. Like I, you know, we could do something around the. There's so many different sort of uh, adjuncts there. Um, we'd love to do, um, uh, you know, some uh documentary type stuff I and mean, there's a whole bunch of things but I, it just it requires time and it's not um this isn't the day job so right. when it becomes the day job and and we have to make a living at it for now it's just been more of a passion project but um we appreciate uh, uh you know all the listeners and stuff and we haven't even hit up people with patreon or any of that kind of stuff yet so there's probably a bunch more things we can do to make it even better um but uh, I'd like to think that uh, that's all yet still to come so um if I don't exhaust myself first.
1: Well, I know there's a lot of people out there that can't wait to see what's coming. So everybody, Tim Halen, good seats still available. I highly recommend it. Tim, thanks for taking the time. I really had a great time talking to you.
0: Oh, Aaron, I appreciate the uh, the outreach and uh, it was uh, uh, likewise, I appreciate your, uh, your interest and it was a pleasure chatting with you too. Hopefully we'll talk again sometime. all right. That was a boatload of fun. I appreciate uh, Aaron having us uh, on the, his show. And again, of course, that is called The Football Odyssey. Uh, and you can find out more about the show at a couple of places. Uh, TheFootballOdyssey.com, uh, as well as the uh, SportsHistoryNetwork.com, which is, as I said earlier at the top of the show, uh, a collection of really cool uh, sports history-centric Uh, Podcasts uh, that uh, talk about a lot of different things. Football uh, is is a a big topic. Uh, There's some uh, general sort of uh, sports uh, uh, themes, just uh, across sports. Uh, There's a a basketball one or two. There's even a Canadian football one from uh, called the From the 55 Yard Line. All great stuff. Uh, Again, that's at uh, SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Just search up the podcast uh, tab there, and again, make sure that you uh, put primarily. Uh, into your feed uh, going forward, the football odyssey with our pal Aaron, uh, and uh, more great stuff. Some great interviews done already uh, with some folks that we've had in our our show previously, uh, people like uh, Upton Bell and uh, Michael McCambridge and, and a whole bunch of others. Highly encouraged, and I think you'll uh, you'll learn a little something along the way too uh, in the realm of pigskin. Thank you again to Aaron. Thank you, of course, for listening, uh, and uh, we will uh, regale you hopefully. Uh, with a fun new episode next time, next week, here on this very little feed. Uh, We appreciate your listening. Uh, You know where you can find us on social media and the website and all that stuff. Uh, Enjoy the uh, the summer, and we'll see you next week, God willing. Uh, Thanks for listening, and take care. Bye-bye.